0: Did you ever feel like your life was a sea of emotions? That's like, whoa, up and down, up and down. If you answered yes, you and the prophet Habakkuk have a lot in common. He lived in Judea, the area where Jerusalem was, southern Israel, and they were, the people were in a time of what we call. National apostasy. What, what does that mean? That means that they had the people who were supposed to be the people of God had departed from God, although don't miss this, they were very religious. So in God's eyes, they were what we might refer to as spiritual phonies or people just going through the motions. Now that grieved Habakkuk as he watched it, what was going on. And in chapter one, well, he kind of got in God's face. And he said to God, what are you going to do about it? And eventually God says to him, I got a plan. Don't think I'm not on the job. I got a plan. I'm going to send the wicked world superpower Babylonians, and they're going to fix it. Habakkuk was like, what? That's like the worst plan I've ever heard of in my, in my life, God. And then God explained that, that after a time, Uh, No dates are given. That's very, very important. No dates are given to Habakkuk. He would deal with Babylon Babylon and the Babylonian army who overstepped their bounds. In chapter 3, verse 2, Habakkuk said this O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Remember that word. He was afraid. O Lord, Revive your work in the midst of the years. We thought that meant in my time when we studied it, in in his time. In the midst of the years, make it known. And then an important key statement, in wrath, remember mercy. Well, after that, we looked at last week, chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. It's It's a prayer and it's a song as Habakkuk experienced the very real presence of God. And here's the thing. The truth of the matter is this. Amazing things can happen in our souls and in our lives when we lay aside our circumstances, and we'll be talking a lot about that today, and we worship I'm not saying we sing, although that may be part of it. We actually, again, lay aside our circumstances and worship God. When we do that, we will start to see our confidence in the Lord will start to grow. Our perspective on things will start to change. Our faith begins to be renewed and grow deeper and as all that is happening we start to trust the lord more and you will not believe how much you begin to change and the word of god the bible the scriptures even if it is terrifying remember habakkuk just said man i heard your plan god and i'm afraid even if it's terrifying like it is for Habakkuk right now, is going to pop in your soul when you're trusting God, when you're worshiping God, it's going to pop in your soul like dynamite. Where did this begin for Habakkuk? Well, you could say before he began to write, but really I think it began to take root in chapter 2, verse 4, where he said, Behold the proud, the Lord said, Behold the proud, His soul is not upright in him. That's not what we want to be. But contrast, something different, the just shall live by his faith. Another key, key statement in this book. And today, we are actually going to witness what happens with a man who comes to a big turning point on that journey. He says it all the way to the end. He's been, it's been up and down, a sea of emotions, and then he comes to this place where he's going to be today, a place where all of us really want to be, if we're followers of Jesus. If you're not, I'm glad you're here, and, and I'm sure you're going to want to be in this place when you hear the place that he's in. And the title of the message is simply this, Something No One Can take from you. Remember the Babylonian army, they are on the march. They may be be coming, they may be close, they may be there outside the city. But there is something, no matter how powerful an army is, even if it's you against an army, there is something that no one can take from you. Today's four verses that we just read take us from the difficult acceptance of God's discipline method for his people. Habakkuk agrees with God. You need to discipline us. We've started following after false idols, but I'm having a tough time with your plan. A lot of stuff we know, we agree with what God does. We just disagree with the plan, the way he gets there. We we say, oh Lord, we want to be more mature in you. And God says, oh great, I got a plan for that. You're like, I don't like the plan. Or, you know, God teach me patience. My wife always says, that's the most dangerous prayer you could ever pray because because if you pray for that prayer, he'll teach you patience. And you're like, excuse me, God, I didn't mean this way to teach me patience. But we're seeing in these verses how he moves from the difficult acceptance of God's discipline to joy. In a sense, these four verses, you could say, summarize the whole book As we see a man of strong faith who at the same time questions God's ways. Doesn't really understand God's ways. The complaining prophet of chapter 1 is a completely different man now. Why? Because he has had throughout this book a real and honest experience with God. Let me say that again. The complainer of chapter 1 is a different man now because he has had, and we've been watching it all along, a, a real and honest experience with the Lord. And I cannot tell you what an important point that is in light of what so many of us were told growing up. Some people told us growing up in a religious system, never question God. Never question God. Now, I am going to state something that some of you are gonna be like, wow, that's the complete opposite. I think that statement is completely dangerous. To never question God. If you don't question God, then who does it leave everything up to? You. If you don't question God, if you don't seek God for answers, then you're left with your own interpretation of the circumstances and your own solutions instead of allowing the Word of God to expand your faith, to expand your mind, to expand your heart, to expand your spirit. Now, if you're taking notes today, three things we want to look at, and the first two are going to seem very odd to you. Number one, the fear faith may experience the fear faith may experience. Now, I didn't say it has to be, but you may experience fear in your faith. Verse 16, he says, when I heard, what did he hear? He heard that God was going to discipline his people for their idolatry and for their leaving him They'd been warned for well over 100 years. There was no escaping it, and the, and the Babylonians were going to bring devastation to the land and to the people, take a lot of them captives back to Babylon, and God also explained to him the devastation he was going to bring upon the Babylonians themselves. So he's heard all of this, and so he says, when I heard, my body trembled. Another version says, My heart pounded. You, know, if you ever feel that? Boom, boom, boom. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself. So just stop there for a second. That is a picture of terror. That is a picture of great fear. This verse is, in some ways, and you know, explaining verse 2, which we just read, except that in verse 3 through 15, Habakkuk experienced the very presence and power of God. You know, a lot of people, to me, talk flippantly about the presence of God. They're like, oh, the Lord was there. It was great. We really sensed his presence. But when you notice the Bible writers and they experience the presence of God, it fills them with terror. And a lot of times they actually have a physical reaction. It will produce in them quite often uh, an extreme reverence for God and an and unworthiness. Now, when I talk about unworthiness before God, I know a lot of times we talk about people being unworthy before God, and people who are not followers of Jesus are like, What's up with this unworthiness stuff, man? Why, why does, if we're so unworthy, why does God want anything to do with us? We don't explain it well, probably because we don't understand it well. When you are in the presence of holiness, you sense your own personal lack of holiness. When you're in the presence of God and you worship him or you sense his worthiness, it puts in you a sense of unworthiness in a comparative way, but when you realize that he wants to adopt you as his child by trusting in his son, that begins to change the way you view and think about yourself. Now, we live in a generation of what I would call hyper-church or hyped-up church, but a real encounter with God may actually produce very similar results in us that it does in the, the Bible writers of fear and trembling but that's not something you can manufacture. That's, that's not something where you can just you know, say like, okay, everybody come up front, we'll all fall down, and, or we'll just all get on our faces or something like that. That is something that happens when God himself comes and touches your heart. Now, some might say, that doesn't seem like faith, Pastor Jim. That seems like he's having an anxiety attack. Here's the thing. You must ask yourself. When you read the Bible, you have to ask questions of it. You must ask yourself a very important question. Habakkuk obviously is lacking peace here. He's afraid. Why is he so afraid? Answer, because he believes the word of God. That's why he's so afraid. If he he was like, oh, God, you're not going to really do that. Come on, you know, come on, Dad, lighten up. It's going to be okay. No, no, no. He's terrified because he believes the Word of God. He believes that what God said will happen, and history has proven it did. It will happen. People often ask me, Pastor Jim, why are you often telling people that if they want to go to heaven... They have to turn to God and put their trust in Jesus Christ. You're constantly saying that. Why do you do that so much? Because I believe that the word of God says, if you do, you will have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Just as Jesus and the apostles taught, it's taught in the Old Testament, it's taught in the New Testament. And if you don't, you will live eternally separated from God. I love that Habakkuk is honest enough to share his fear with us instead of pretending that he is unaffected by the whole thing. Maybe right now in your life you're fighting a battle and it doesn't look good right now. Pray, yes, but also understand that fear, while we want to replace fear with faith, we want to replace fear and anxiety with prayer, but fear can be natural to a follower of Jesus. Acts fourteen twenty two, the apostle Paul and Barnabas had went out and they had started churches, and on the way back they were uh, stopping them to see how they were doing. It says this: they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. Those are just followers of Jesus, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, "We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God." In other words. It's not going to be easy all the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, later on from this time, from Acts, would write this. For we do not want you to be ignorant. Some of us don't like that word. Other verses say uh, uninformed or unaware. We don't want you to be uninformed or unaware, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above, above strength, so that we despaired even of... Life. Listen to the way J.B. Phillips in his paraphrase translates that verse. We should, like you, our brothers, to know something of what we went through in Asia. At that time, we were completely overwhelmed. The burden was more than we could bear. In fact, we told ourselves that this was the end. You know what that is? That's fear, that's fear. And I believe with all of my heart that part of the problem, there's a lot of problems, but one of the problems with the church in America is so much of the plastic pretending that goes on. Instead of really being honest with one another. Now, I'm not saying that everything goes wrong is the end of the world. <laughs> we, don't be, we don't wanna be that. But we also wanna be real about what's going on in our lives. Now, I know some of you are much more spiritual than me. Don't get a big head. That's not really saying very much. And you say, well, I follow Jesus. Okay, great. I'm glad that you do. Let's go to Jesus in the last week of his life. And I won't even go to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's too easy. John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus says this. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour hour. Why is Jesus soul troubled? Because he believes the word of God. Because he believes his heavenly Father and he believes the Old Testament prophets. And sometimes when you read the word of God and you know the destiny of the people who don't believe or you even sometimes we'll see in a bit you get caught up in that that can be a cause for fear. Verse 16 continues. He says that I might rest In the day of trouble. Now, interesting, he was fearful, he was afraid, but now he says that I might rest in the day of trouble. Another version says, Day of calamity, when he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Another version says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. By the way, the day of trouble is about 65 years away. Remember I said God doesn't give us any kind of time, and, and he says, well, I'm going to rest or I'm going to wait for that day. Now last week we referred to what Habakkuk saw as a theophany, the, the appearance of the, of the presence and power of God. And we said that was because of, also because of God's faithfulness in the past, uh, he looked. Back at the word of God, and he he saw that. And because of all of these, putting all these things together, Habakkuk says that he can rest and he can wait. Now, that should be a great encouragement to us because God will, despite the circumstances, never abandon his people, and we can put our trust in God's sovereignty over. That is his control over the affairs of this world. That encourages me, particularly in this day, because like Habakkuk, we can deal with political unrest in a nation. We can deal with the fact, like Habakkuk did, come to that place of rest and waiting when everything seems to be falling apart. Despite his fears, despite not knowing when the enemy is coming, or again, if they're close or they've already arrived, what is Habakkuk doing? Well, we talked about this last week. He's keeping the end in sight. He's, he's, he's looking at the way it's going to turn out in the end. That is a long way from chapter 1 chapter 1, he was like, how long? He's gone all the way from how long? What's going on? What's the deal, God? I don't know what you're doing, to I can rest. I can wait. I can trust in God, and I can trust in his timetable. Now, let's be real. Let's be honest. Waiting on the Lord is not always that easy, is it? Some of you are going, it's not ever easy. We want timelines, don't we? We want to know when things are going to happen. But be sure, Christian, waiting on the Lord's timeline is a test of our faith, not because God wants to give us a bad grade, because God wants to build our trust in Him. Now, if you're anything like me, and for your sake I hope you're not, but if you're anything like me, if God is not clear on His timing, I've noticed about this about myself. I am very faithful to suggest timing to Him. <laughs> when God's not giving me a timing of something, I'm like, "If this one's tough for you, God, you know, I got I got the answer." And ninety-nine out of hundred times, it's like, uh, "How about now? How about now? How about yesterday?" But Habakkuk has now come to the place where he has resolved in his heart that he's going to trust the Lord no matter what happens and no matter when it happens. To wait like this, and he's, remember, he is, he is, he's waiting in constant anticipation on God's judgment upon his people requires deep inner strength to fight off the fear. Some people like to project strength on the outside. And then you get to know them and you realize that they are a complete mess on the inside. But again, they don't want to let anybody into the inside. So they're pretending on the outside and everybody sees it. Everybody sees it except for them. But if we want to have that deep inner strength, we need the power of the word of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit for it to be real. That also means we live by faith despite circumstances. We live by faith in life, and we live by faith in death, as we'll see next. That takes us to number two. The difficulty faith may experience the difficulty faith may experience. Verse 17, I think we're supposed to feel the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, and the complete sadness. Picture yourself living in an agricultural community where you you make your money off the land, and without the farm, without the land, you've got nothing. Verse 17. Watch for the those. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines. And everything's going to get worse. Though the labor of the olive or the olive crop may fail and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. All the animals are gone. For us, this is the equivalent of saying, I lost my job, I went to the bank to get the little bit of money that I had, and the banks are closed, and so I took the little bit of money that I had, and I went to the supermarket, and there was no food on the shelves, just a bunch of hungry people standing in line. Hard to say whether Habakkuk was actually living through this or he knew this was something that was destined to happen. I lean more towards that, that he knows that this is what's going to happen. But he wants us to feel the weight of total despair, of no option but God. And I find it particularly interesting, although I probably that's not a great word, I think it's better to say I find it particularly sad that when imminent danger seems to be on its way, people flock to the Lord. After 9-11, the churches were packed for a little while. When the COVID-19 virus hit and all the churches went online, people were watching online, and a lot of people saw tremendous decreases as people began to feel a little bit more comfortable with what was going on. Because once it passed in a particular area. It's not over by any stretch of the imagination. And whatever the thing was, once it passed, stock market crashes, all kinds of things like that. In other words, once God showed mercy, which people asked for, most people go back to life as usual until the next crisis. Yet, friends, it's important we realize that these intense times of difficulty are meant to help us see our need for God, and it makes us almost, if you will, like a superhero with acute hearing. We're now able to really hear the Lord speak to us as his desire is that we would hear him. So what we have here is a picture of total economic and social devastation it is the result of the Babylonian invasion. And as some people in our congregation know, this is what happens in the devastation of war. Now, sometimes people say, if you want to revolve an economy, go to war. Yes, if you're the, at the home base and you're just making bombs and weapons and stuff like that. But the actual battlefield, the place where the war is taking place, everything is in disarray. You see the pictures of the bombed-out buildings and, and, and people just looking for a, for a morsel of food. And here's the thing. It's not that everybody in Israel, and southern Israel, was unfaithful. The north had already been taken over over 100 years earlier because of their unfaithfulness. There were righteous people in Judea. There were righteous people in Jerusalem, yet they were not spared the judgment that came to the nation. In fact, it's going to get worse than Habakkuk even knows because God judges nations, and sometimes there are righteous people that are going to be caught up in that judgment. And here's one thing we have to realize, that that faith, okay, does not guarantee that life will be easy. Today, if you have no money or or your health is poor, that that does not mean that you lack faith. You You may lack faith, but that doesn't necessarily mean you lack faith. And I think to tell people, who are struggling financially and have bad health that they don't have enough faith is one of the most sinful, godly, un- godless things anybody could ever do. And when people do that, they need to stop because that is just wrong and sad that they say right now that somewhere between 30 and 40% of people who say they're Christians in America have bought into that lie. That is a complete lie. Do you see that here? Do you see that in the life of Jesus and the apostles? They all got killed except for one. And all the great martyrs of the faith. See, despite the teachings of today, which I understand fill the seats, people go, could that many people be wrong? Yes, they could. Faith does not guarantee comfort. When you see Jesus on the cross, does that look comfortable? When the apostles are being killed for their faith and martyred for their faith, does that seem comfortable? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus is out in the desert and he's hungry, and Satan comes along to him and says, hey, hey, you think you're the son of God, huh? Well, if you think you're the son of God, take those stones and turn them into bread, Matthew 4 4, Jesus says, But he answered and said, It is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8 3 from Moses, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Philippians chapter 3, the, the whole letter, really, you could study is a picture of this, that, that sometimes difficulty faith, you know, there's difficulty in faith. Sometimes the Apostle Paul is in jail. He says this, Philippians 3 7 and 8. He says, But what things were gained to me. He had a good career and he lost it. Good in terms of finances and security and all that kind of stuff. These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of knowing, for the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Actually, it's the word dung. And count them as rubbish. That I may gain Christ. Then in chapter four, he goes on to say this. He says, Listen, in my life, I had times of plenty. I had times where I had a lot of stuff. And he said, I had other times when I was in deep need. But he says this I have learned the secret of being content. How do you you learn the secret of being content? Well, I can give you one idea on that. You make a mental decision that you are not going to let the circumstances of your life determine your contentment. You're going to fight that off. It's not easy. But you're not going to let the circumstances of your life determine your contentment. And then right after that he says Philippians 4:13 that famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, difficulty did not change his mindset. Difficulty did not define who the apostle Paul was. And that includes, for you and for me, the difficulty that our faith may experience. Now we come to number three. The joy faith can experience. I took the word may out, and I put the word can, because I want us to really be aggressive here. This This is an aggressive way of thinking. Verse 18, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Remember what he just said in the last verse. There's no food. There's no animals in the stalls. There's nothing. It's devastation. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Not in the fact that everything is going south. In the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Holman Christian Standard Bible of this verse says, yet I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So what does he say? Chapter one, things are not going right. He's questioning God. What's going on? Now he knows what God's plan is, way worse than what was going on in chapter one. So, but what does he say? Okay, all this bad stuff can happen, yet I will. Yet I will rejoice. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Something is very different. Now, you know, there's some really hard parts about being a pastor. It's like you, you live in this constant up down kind of world because you know what's going on with a lot of people and you're trying to navigate life yourself. And I do know this that, that many of you are living in verse 17. Though, you live in the world of though. Though you just recently lost a loved one. Though you're maybe your marriage went south and, and you lost your spouse and you barely ever get to see your kids. Though you maybe lost your job. Though you have... No money. I mean, you don't even know how you're going to, you know, pay the bills next month. Though, maybe your health is just absolutely awful. Though, you look ahead to the future, and like Habakkuk, and you see no sunshine. All you see is darkness. Darkness. Though, and if you're a parent and it's applicable for Father's Day, you're so burdened for your children. It's just, it's just, it's on your, it's on your chest like a cinder block every time you lay down and, and try to go to sleep. Maybe today the Lord says to you, you need this day, you need a yet I will day. You need to look those things in the eye and say yes they're real. They're real. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will joy in the God of my salvation. The apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 6:10. He said, "I'm sorrowful, man, yet I'm always rejoicing." In Philippians 4, 4, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. You're like, what is it with these guys? This is what it is, loved ones. It's a chosen joy. Did you hear that? It's a chosen joy in God. It is not a circumstantial joy. It doesn't mean you ignore the circumstances. You just put them over here for a bit and you say, Lord, I'm just going to find for this moment, for this time, I'm just going to find my joy in you. And Habakkuk basically says, listen, though the enemy can take everything away from me, there's something, there's one thing that the, that the enemy can never take from me. And that is what? The Lord my God. You, you, you thought I was going to say joy, didn't you? But it seems like things can take our joy. But Habakkuk says, listen, you can take it all, man. You can take it all. But you can never take God from me. Despite the worst possible living conditions. Despite the the, the threat of life. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Once again, it's a chosen joy. No matter what is coming at him. Habakkuk resolves to be faithful to the Lord. He says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. I will rest, I will find joy in the fact that I am going to spend eternity with God. Many of you have met me at the door after church and know that I got these, this whacked out neurological condition and they're like, "I'm so sorry what happened to you, Pastor Jim?" And I don't mean to be smart alecky when I say it, but this is always my answer. It's okay. I'm going to heaven. Because I'm looking at the end in sight. I know God is healing me. I' my timing. Hey, how about now, God? That would be cool. His timing? Different. But I believe that he has the best in mind for me. My dear friends, this idea of a chosen joy is a discipline to be learned. The Apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content. God had to teach me how to be content by rejoicing, by rejoicing, by rejoicing, by by submitting myself to that discipline. In other words, it's going to require grace-motivated effort. And if you and I don't, in the those of life, if we let the those of life overcome the rejoicing in God, we will drown under the waves of despair and we will walk away from God. This here is a man who has made the determination that although I might lose everything, I will not lose my God. And that, for him, is something to be joyful for about. And when it comes under attack, he will fight he will fight. He will fight to retain that joy. Now, remember, we said some of the people in the land were righteous, and the land is being attacked. Habakkuk is one of them. He's a righteous man, and he has every reason. God has shown him the future. The other people are wondering what's going to happen. God has shown him the future, and he's probably going to think like, oh, my gosh, this is worse than we ever thought it could be. It's worse. So he has every reason not to rejoice except one. And that is the fact that God is the source of his hope, that God is the source of his joy, and no one can ever take God from him. So he's making a firm commitment, and this is a commitment I want all of us to make today, that our faith is going to be a survivor no matter what happens, not a victim. We're not going to let our faith die out we're not going to view everything in life through the lens of our circumstances, but we're going to view everything in our lives through the lens of God, and we're going to determine, like Habakkuk, we are going to live by our faith. We are not going to live by every wind and wave that comes our way to get us off track. Now, how we get there, loved ones, also explains why so many people fall away from the faith. We're like, Why do these people keep falling away from the faith? Here's the key. Habakkuk loves God himself more than the blessings of life. Habakkuk loves God himself more than the blessings of God. He loves God himself more than the fact that everything is going to go great for him or he's going to be happy all the time. Regardless of the circumstances, Even in the midst of the coming judgment on the land, Habakkuk still sees the Lord as his loving Savior. And despite the hard times, Habakkuk was able to triumph over them because of the knowledge of God and the love of his Savior. It was that joy in the Lord. It was that joy in his Savior King that Habakkuk was motivated by grace to face the future and to endure the pain. And friend, you and I can do that too. We can. We really can. The Apostle Paul would write these words 650 years later, Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one. No one. Nothing, nothing. Shall tribulation, he continues, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Answer, no. No. Those things, no matter how bad it gets, cannot separate us from the love of Christ, if we've put our trust in him. Same chapter, verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How are we more than conquerors when everything is falling apart at the seams? Through him who loved us. Let me ask you a question. Is that our attitude? How are you doing with all this stuff that's going on? Well, you know, okay. Does that sound like more than a conqueror? That sounds like someone who what? Who's just trying to be, you know, they're like a victim. We're not victims. We're, not, we're, not even, we're even more than survivors. We are more than conquerors. See, the Apostle Paul is not saying that times will never be tough. What is he saying? He's saying that, that Christ loves you. That God is always with you. And therefore, because of those two things... And the fact that he can't be taken from you, that joy is possible, let's let's import it into today. Man, our nation is in big-time trouble. It is in big-time trouble. And it may get worse. It's probably going to get worse. May we all say in the midst of all the trouble, yes, yes, though, 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 yet I will. Yet I will, no matter what goes on, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will joy in the God of my salvation. This is how the prophet, this is how Habakkuk, this is how you and I move from complaining to contentment. This is how it's done. He has moved from complaining in chapter 1 to being fully content in chapter 3, and things are getting worse. They're not getting better. This is is what happens when a follower of Jesus sees our Savior on the cross and it helps us to trust him more. One old Bible commentator put it this way, joy comes when we love God's presence more than we love his presence. (laughs) Meaning real true joy comes when we we love God being with us Then we enjoy more than anything he could ever give us here on earth. Loved ones, vibrant faith is possible when we rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ even in the midst of the bad news in the United States of America. When we rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ even in the midst of the bad news of our world. When we rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of the bad news in our own lives. Vibrant faith is possible because of these simple words. Verse 16, he said, when I heard. You see, when he says, when I heard, when we say, let's open the word of God, what are we saying? God is with us. And God is going to speak to us. Habakkuk is really just coming to the place in time that Apostle Paul would write about 650 years later. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Some versions say hearing the word of Christ or hearing the message about Christ. And verse 19 ends the book. The Lord God, another version says, the sovereign Lord, the Lord who's in control of everything, is my strength. I'm not my strength. The Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. Interesting thing about we got a lot of deer living up here. Man, their feet are so light. I mean, and they can jump like you, like there's no tomorrow. And yet, You watch them walk over rocks and hills and stuff like that and their feet, although they're light, they're so sure-footed. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on high hills. And then he ends it with this odd expression. We picked it up in verse one. We said this is a psalm or a song. To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Habakkuk's final words express his faith. Yahweh is my strength. What is he saying? He is gonna carry me through this life. He bears my burdens. Really, what what did Habakkuk do in chapter one? He dumped the bus of his burdens on God. And God didn't go, you know, I'm really getting tired of your complaining. He didn't say that at all. God said, I'm gonna show you. But he's brought him full circle to the place and time where he says, the Lord is my strength. And and not only that, when he says that that he will will make me walk on the high high hills like a sure-footed deer, when we trust the Lord, we can rise above the troubles of this world. That does not mean the path up to the heights will be easy. But the Lord is our strength. He is with us. And let them take everything from us. But nobody can take him from us. Interesting, the high hills in the scriptures or the high places were the home of the false gods. And God sent Jesus to defeat the false gods of this world for you and to give you and me victory. There are many false gods in this world. Whatever people love more than God, whatever is their God, they love more than God, and we call them God's substitutes. So the Son of God, Jesus Christ, died on the cross in your place for your sins, and he died on a hill. If you will, Jesus took the hill for you. You know, that day it looked anything but, like anything but a victory. On that day, it looked like an incredible victory for evil. But understand this, Jesus defeated death by dying and then rising from the dead and now offers eternal life, the forgiveness of sins and life in heaven with God to be adopted by God as a son or daughter of God and all you need to do is to be willing to turn from your sin, turn from your own self-directed life, turn to God. See Jesus dying on the cross in your place for your sins and putting your trust in him instead of yourself. And what God does in that moment is he, he takes your sin and he, and he puts it upon Jesus and he takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and he places it upon you, and he credits you with having lived a perfect life. That's what it means to become a Christian. What happens if you do that? Oh, there's gonna be a lot of changes that come about in your life. I found them to be the most welcome changes I could ever imagine in my life. But if you do that, if you trust in Jesus today, or if you have trusted in Jesus, this is what you're able to say. He's my God. He's my Savior. He's my King. He's my strength. And no one, I don't care who they are, will ever be able to take him from me. In John chapter 10, Jesus was talking about people, talking to people who had put their trust in him. And he said this, he said, and I give them eternal life. What does that tell us? Eternal life is a gift. You, nothing you can do to earn it. We respond to what Jesus did on the cross by trusting him. It's a response. It's nothing we do. It's just a response. We put our faith and trust in him. We, we grab a hold of what he offers us by faith. So Jesus tells these heaven bound people who are going there, who've put their trust in him, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. What what does that mean? That means they will never die. They're gonna go straight to heaven, absent from the body, the scripture tells us, and present with the Lord, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Remember the Apostle Paul told us that that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So all along we've been talking about that no one can take God from you, but also Jesus says here, no one can take you, Christian, from me. So there is a bond between God and Christians that, that just cannot be broken if you put your trust in him. And I pray you will do that today. And so this chapter, this book ends with this. To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Now we read that and go, like, dude, you ruined the book. Like, why did you do that? Well, next week we're going to look at that. And what he just said is so very important. It's actually a statement that is dripping with the grace of God. But you've got to join us next week as we'll close out this wonderful book. Well, let's all stand and pray.